Hello. Hi. What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. With me today is Evan, the host of Left of the Projector. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, when was the first time you saw this movie? The first time I saw this movie, I would say four or five years ago. And I saw it a couple times at, at that time. Uh, a friend of mine had it on DVD, and I believe mm-hmm. we watched it a couple times. But I hadn't seen it since then. So I watched it all the way through, and then I gave it sort of a second run through of the section we're talking about, and then kind of scanned through other kind of key scenes, maybe to give some good context. But it's a, it's a great movie. I, I had forgotten how good it was. So Ex Machina, we are at minute 25. I think we finally get to the second meeting with Ava next minute. So you're in right before it. Caleb has just been woken up as this minute begins by Kyoko coming in with, I finally figured out this minute, it's just coffee. Okay. I thought it was tea at first was my, it feels like it should be tea. Yeah. The script says it's coffee, but on the tray in her hands, that cup looked so big. And in the script, it was supposed to be a cafetiere, which is a coffee serving thing. Mm. And it's just a cup. Caleb's holding it now in this minute. I'm like, okay, I guess she's just really small. (laughs) She is kind of small, I guess. Yeah. The music transitions to like strings as the scene goes. And even before I noted that it actually was, it's supposed to be diegetic. It's supposed to be coming from elsewhere in the house because it is playing up where Caleb will go and see Nathan. Yeah, I found that he seems so unsettled when she comes in the room. Like it's a very, there's no, like she clearly did not knock. She just kind of popped in. Right. And I said last week, he also doesn't look like he was woken up. He looks like he was interrupted. Like he was caught doing something. He's so startled that his reaction is unusual, I think. Yeah. And you don't catch in the previous minute or the previous moment. Th- this is like the, the cut scene, like where it cuts to. So you don't know what he, he was presumably sleeping or right. something else. Yeah. It goes straight to like, there's a silhouette on the door. He sits up. There's no moment of, was he doing anything else? Actually, I got to jump in from editing because I double checked and that's wrong. There are five whole seconds of Caleb unmoving under his blanket before we see any silhouette. Kyoko, in the previous shot, was walking past the bed, which shouldn't have put her at the angle going to the corner of the room that she does go to. She goes to the corner on the wall by the door instead of the opposite side. Yes, the camera sort of like goes the other direction and sees her going the other way. Yeah, it doesn't quite match. It's one of my complaints about Garland as a director, but this one's not that bad. He doesn't always block his shots consistently. And I would note when she turns to leave, she doesn't look at Caleb. Like she doesn't acknowledge that he's sitting there. She just keeps her head down, walks to the door, exits. She was given a task. She completed the task. Yeah. And we learn later why probably she's, right. you know, that, that's why she's there. She's just to fulfill a duty. She has lots of interesting body language. Her walk is very specific, mm-hmm. I, I would say. Well, yeah. Sonoya Mizuno like Alicia Vikander, both had dancer backgrounds. Sonoya quit. She was with a ballet company, had like an ongoing position and quit when she got this job. I see. Because she wanted to be an actress. She does have that ballerina body. My, my sister, when she was younger, was into ballet and she has that kind of tall, slender frame. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. And it works for robots. It's precise control of movement. When you find out she's a robot, it makes sense. That's how she moves. It's very precise, as you said. Yeah, exactly. The music gets louder before we cut, I believe, but it is definitely louder as we get to a room we haven't seen yet, a workout room. 
where Nathan is lifting weights. And there's a shelf with towels. There's other workout equipment on the floor. He's got a space for this, just like he's got the boxing stuff outside. Yeah, and I noticed in the movie, all of the rooms that Nathan is in, except for Caleb's bedroom, are on the outside with windows. Like his is the only room in the whole, I'm sure not in the whole house or the compound, but he doesn't spend time in any room where he's not looking out. Maybe the only one is the Pollock room that he was just in last minute. Okay, you're right. That's Because true. that was a set. This is the location. And I think their idea is that the lab and everything else is downstairs. The house has windows. And so anytime we do see windows, it's in Norway. It's supposed to be Alaska. Okay. Got it. And he's facing the windows. And I thought dangerously close to the windows, given he's lifting a big weight, but also he's doing that like very self-centered man thing of kind of looking down at his arms as he's doing it rather than looking out at the big, nice view right in front of him. Yeah. It feels performative for like, yes. I know he's doing it for himself, but like the boxing scene and this one, he feels like he's putting on a show. I don't. I think the performative is what it's most of it's for. I mean, like the boxing scene I have said on the show a few times. He knew when Caleb arrived. He knows when the helicopter is scheduled. He knew Caleb had checked in at the front door. And then he goes out to box. The last few minutes in the Pollock room, he knew the power went out and Caleb would be looking around. And so he goes and sits. And I'm currently operating under the assumption that he doesn't actually have a drinking problem. And everything he's doing is part of the performance. Is it possible? I mean, I guess they're both drinking at times. But I also actually had a theory that he wasn't even drinking real alcohol a lot of the time. Right. Yeah, he was just faking it. Well, like last time, there were three beers on the table, which implied he'd been drinking them, but no one checks. And he clearly is at the bottom of the one beer he has because he looks inside it instead of taking a drink at the end of that scene. Yes, yes. And so right now I'm kind of thinking all of that's fake. It's all like a plan to get him to think he's drinking so he can perform his own plan, which he does. He wants Caleb to think there's an opening to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty good planning on Nathan's part. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you can build what he's been able to build, that's like a, that's like little child's play for him. Right. It's just programming on (laughs) humans, which that's the point of kind of the movie is it doesn't, I liked going in in early episodes and saying, yeah, sure. Caleb's also an android. But the point is, it doesn't matter. And now I'm like, nah, Caleb's not an android, but it does not matter. Nathan can program anyone. He can prepare for it. You have enough data points on anyone. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah. Rich guy with all the information from his blue book, stealing information from everybody's phone. He can get whatever he wants. Yeah. Sound familiar. (laughs) Exactly. And so Caleb comes in. Hey. Nathan says, hey, man. Caleb says, good morning. And Nathan says, good morning. Sorry to send Kyoko to wake you but I didn't want too much of the day to slip by. He sets the barbell down and turns toward Caleb, and out of frame, he turns off the music. Caleb tells him, because he's being polite to the boss, yeah, no, I know, it was a good thing. Thanks. The music in general in this movie has weird cuts, and like it feels like, I mean, I guess this is in so many movies where like you know it raises the viewer's like blood pressure as you're watching, mm-hmm. and I feel like you yes. do that in the scene, even though it's not, I would say a vital scene in the movie, right? but it does get, it gets you like something's going to happen. You feel it. Yeah. I mean, it got louder when he came in the room and then now, you know, Nathan turns it off. So it gets quiet. And so, yeah, we might think this is important, but then the conversation is not that important in context of other interactions they've had about what's going on. It is, but this conversation itself is just basic. 
Although we get to see a little of Nathan's misogyny, as it were. Yeah. Well, it's like you also, you know, it's almost like a like a sneaky way to make you think, like you said, like like I think something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But then I think the thing that really does happen soon after is in this in the day two, which is right after this minute. Right. So it's like it's preluding to this future scene. Yeah. And even here, he's like, she's some alarm clock. He's basically telling Caleb she's not a person. Yeah, he doesn't get it. <laughs> Maybe not explicitly, but Nathan is thinking of her as an alarm clock. He, she's just a tool he has in the house. Yeah, she is to him. Yeah. And then he's like, get you right up in the morning. And he laughs. And it cuts to Caleb, who laughs. But you can tell he's uncomfortable by what Nathan just said. <laughs> yeah. But he still laughs. He's very... He's the boss. You got to laugh at his right. jokes. Exactly. And then Nathan's like, so day two, you ready? What's the plan? Hit me. Being very direct. And Caleb doesn't actually have a clear answer on that. I don't know that he had a plan. I feel like he kind of like wings it. Well, yeah, he didn't know why he was there until he arrived. And then he just got thrown into it. I like that he is trying. Like He wants to have a format. It's like, I have to do this test. To impress you, but also this is awesome. Like I get to deal with the first probably artificial intelligence ever. This is a big deal. And so he wants to do it well. And he says, yeah, well, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure the examination formats. Um, he's like, uh-huh. He says, yeah, it feels like testing Ava through conversation is kind of a closed loop. Interesting way to refer to it too. Yeah. And Nathan's like, it's a closed loop. And there's one more line of dialogue, but it was here where in my notes, I got on a bit of a rant (laughs) (laughs) because I mean, basic definition, a closed loop means the output feeds back as an input. So it repeats itself for Ava. That would mean if she is programmed to have a conversation, you need to get beyond just basic conversations to understand if she's better than her programming, because as we'll get into next minute in the dialogue, it doesn't mean that she understands what conversation is. But I have a very specific problem with the philosophy regarding artificial intelligence and the way this movie deals with it. Because I disagree. (laughs) But even one thing I was thinking of that scene, too, is even though he's programmed her to be, you know, intelligent, she still also is performing this task of conversation. Right. So you have to, I think Caleb is right. He has to remove that piece to be able to actually break through. So I think he's right. But yeah, I want to I want to I want to hear the No, Caleb is right. Yeah, okay. He has to do something more than just a conversation. What that is, don't know. My thing is like we saw him in there for 3 minutes on day 1. If I were in the situation, I'd be spending as much of the day with her as possible. I would be watching movies with her. I would be playing games with her. You know, you find other ways to see how she reacts to things, not just talking. Yeah, he doesn't um you think he'd want to test just to see her reactions. To like eventually we get to the drawings and the things that right. she does, but he could have brought something to show her, but doesn't. Yeah. He even could have like grabbed a book. You know, Nathan's got books there. Maybe Caleb didn't bring much with him because he didn't know why he was going. Right. But Nathan's got to have stuff. He's got art. Not all of it's small enough to transport around, but that room with the Pollock has some sculptures in one corner. There's other paintings in other rooms. There's skulls <laughs> yeah. around this house. Get a reaction to things, not just you sitting on a chair. This goes back to Wittgenstein, which is a specific reference for the name Blue Book, and also John Searles, who I've referenced in a previous episode, and 
the next episode, minutes 26, will be just me doing a whole pre-written thing again so I can get on even more of a rant. <laughs> because the general idea is artificial intelligence, people tend to operate on the uh, sort of presumption that if it doesn't have a soul, if it can't love and do all those other things that we say as human, it's not. This is part of the problem is I don't know how you finish that sentence. Because I think Ava is absolutely artificial intelligence. We just usually use that phrase to mean alive, having free will, being like the rest of us. And I don't like that. It's like some other thing. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, this is a Turing test, basically. And Alan Turing, in Computing Machinery Intelligence, where we get that from, he cites Jeffrey Jefferson's The Mind of Mechanical Men. Where that guy says, not until a machine can write a sonnet or compose a concerto because of thoughts and emotions felt, and not by the chance fall of symbols, could we agree that machine equals brain. That is, not only write it, but know that it had written it. No mechanism could feel and not merely artificially signal an easy contrivance. Pleasure at its successes, grief when its valves fuse, be warmed by flattery, be made miserable by its mistakes, be charmed by sex, be angry or depressed when it cannot get what it wants. Jefferson cites Descartes and a premise that animals are driven by reflex, meaning they don't have souls, minds, or free will. Mm. Which my response to that, that is fundamentally unprovable. Yeah, definitely not. We decide what animals think, and then we decide that means they're just animals. Turing himself says, According to the most extreme form of this view, the only way by which one could be sure that a machine thinks is to be the machine and to feel oneself thinking. <laughs> which not going to happen. <laughs> right. Like, for example, you're in a Zoom call with me right now. I've never met you in person. I don't know how real you are. If we're going by these standards. True. You know, I know you have Discord and you have your own podcast. You have opinions. But if I'm going to be extreme about it, that just means someone else put those there. Like it's, it's a, I think it's just a problem with philosophy generally that I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I took philosophy in college, like an intro course. Right. And I, I couldn't grasp it. I applaud people who can like really dive into it and truly get it. I had to write a paper where we had to argue that something was true that wasn't. Huh. It was a, a really hard exercise because you have to prove, that, I mean, it feels similar to this. Like you have to prove that it's real, but you can't. Right. Same idea. The only way to actually prove it doesn't exist. And so I saw people on, I think it was on Reddit or Quora, I forget where, debating whether this is even a Turing test. And they're like, that's not the traditional Turing test. I'm like, there is no traditional Turing test. Turing was just throwing out an idea in an essay years before we had machines even remotely capable of this stuff. And then later people decided that would be how we measure a test of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Hmm. But whether we call it intelligence or we call it having a soul or free will, those are words that we define through a closed loop, as it were. Yes, yes, exactly. We have already decided we are special. And so we constantly define what makes us special so that we can exclude others. It reminds me of this, uh, a big fan of George Carlin and one of his standard routines, he's talking about like the sanctity of life. And he says, we say that life is sacred, but who says so? We do. Why? Because we're alive. It's like self-interest. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to say we're sacred because we have the ability to think that that's possible. So right. what else are you going to do? And you could argue that animals think their lives are sacred or they wouldn't you know, eat. Or protect each other. Exactly. Hmm. There was a thing, 
I just saw that was I think that was this morning, a bill in North Carolina where they're trying to codify that a life begins at fertilization. I saw that. Yeah. And the title of the bill is this whole long thing about it starts. It has to be protected because it's alive and all this stuff and deserves to live. And then the last part of the title was unless it is convicted of a capital offense. I'm like, so it's life is sacred. It's totally worth saving until the state decides it wants to kill it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you can't accuse politically. You can't accuse people of hypocrisy because most of them don't care. Indeed. Uh, Yeah. In my my notes, I'm like, this is the same logic that gets us to white cishet men taking rights away from women, people of color, anyone in the LGBTQIA plus community, anyone who's neurodivergent, or even saying property owning men are the only proper citizens because they decided capitalism was also good. Yeah. Well, I saw something too, maybe it was a tweet or maybe it was a politician saying that, you know, people who, you know, the only people that should be able to vote should be, have a certain IQ and have a certain mm-hmm. amount of money. It's like, yeah. well, that's because you say that it's, you're making this up. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe in an ideal world, we would want to know that people have some idea what's going on before they put a vote out there, but we don't have the means to fairly measure that. And in this country in particular, we have decided that everyone gets a vote at a certain age. Of course, then we take away votes if you're uh, ex-con because... Somehow you're not trustworthy <laughs> anymore. Right. It's like, we've. It's you got out of prison, you served your time, you've been rehabilitated, but you still can't vote because the state decided you were worse than the people who probably doing the same stuff you did or worse. Exactly. And so we define life, intelligence, the soul, and whatever else is lesser so that we can treat lesser however we want. And in this case, Nathan has physically, we see later the montage of the androids he's made, or gynoids technically, have all been physically looking like people, at least in part. It's more about the software. But then he locks them in a room, mistreats them, so that he can, I guess, test whether or not that means they'll want to escape, because he thinks that's how you test what humanity is. Which might be accurate, sort of. I also wondered, I don't know if you discussed this before, is Ava doesn't fully have, you know, skin completely covering her to make her completely human. It's left that way. I mean, is that so in his mind, he's able to comprehend her not being human? Right. It's like this constant reminder because obviously he can handle making skin for it. Right. Because she has skin on her hands or feet or face. So it's a deliberate, constant reminder for Caleb. This isn't a person. It's not a person pretending she might be a robot. So it's like part of the test. Yeah. It's like looking directly at this. Can you decide you care? And I'm like, I can decide I care about people I've never seen before. I can decide I care about pets. I can decide about so many things. There's got to be, as Caleb said, that's a closed loop as well. Right. You can't properly test this. I mean, the movie doesn't necessarily say you can, but that is the point of the movie. But I'd say by the standards of what Ava is, there's plenty of actual people who are not as advanced as she is when it comes to being able to express themselves and think and participate in life with other people. We don't lock them away in asylums anymore just because they have something wrong with them. No. Well, Well, we do. We don't as much as we used to. We don't give lobotomies just because. Yeah, right. Like Those with power prescribe a spectrum ranging from inhuman to most human. And then they control the standards where we put people. Yeah. And it's basically Caleb's job is impress the boss 
really all he has to do is tell him yes. That's all he does at the end is, does she pass? Yes. How do you decide Caleb can decide that either? I mean, he also know he, he knows Caleb's like he has, I'm sure, like an entire psychological profile mm-hmm. of him. Yeah. So he knows, he, he almost knows what he's going to do. Right. I mean, we know the point of the test later on, but he's clearly manipulated him in a way that he's going to respond in a certain way, Presu- you know, within some level of error, right. of course. Well, the whole test and the whole movie is basically a closed loop because Nathan, he picked Caleb because of what he knows about him. He manipulates him with every conversation they have. He's manipulating Ava to want to leave. Really, the only wild card in this scenario is that Kyoko is like, I'm going to help Caleb and Ava. And I don't think Nathan expected that. No, she seems to have these moments. You know, she doesn't understand, but then you think she does. Uh-huh. Or she, or she, but I, my, my thought was that she understands the expressions yeah. that they have, but not the words because she can't supposedly understand them unless she could learn. I don't know. Right. If she's so advanced, she can probably learn. And then her programming maybe keeps her from talking about it. But also, who's she going to talk to up till now? Yeah. She's not going to talk to Nathan about it because he mistreats her. She's the reason Ava has a knife at the end of the film. And at least my initial impulse, I'll decide if I still think it when we get to that scene. She's the reason Ava leaves Caleb behind Hmm. because she knows all Caleb wanted to do is save Ava, not save everyone Nathan was keeping in this building. Like, there's another robot here that Caleb doesn't care about. Yeah, he had no loyalty, really, to her. And so as soon as that's the case, of course, Ava's not going to take Caleb with her. He's dangerous. Mm -hmm. He can out her. And then she'll just get locked up again. (sighs) So the minute ends with Caleb responding, says, yeah, like testing a chess computer by only playing chess, which I think technically might be the only way to test a chess computer. (laughs) but I get what he's saying. (laughs) And that's how Nathan responds to it. You know, he's like, but how else do you test a chess computer? Or uh, I think that's in the next minute. Yeah. It cuts before. Now, one of Oscar Isaac's inspirations and how he played the character was looking at Bobby Fisher. He told Esquire 7th, April, 2015, the idea that he's from the Bronx self-taught. He's a chess genius. He had an Olympic trainer training him while he was preparing for his chess battles. Mm. It's basically how he plays. I don't, know exactly if this accent that Nathan has sounds like the Bronx. I don't know many people from the Bronx, but that's what he was going for. Yeah. Living near there, I would say it's not quite there, but close-ish. He also, it was Bobby Fischer and Stanley Kubrick were his two sort of inspirations for how he looked and how he played the character. So it's a mix of accents. I mean, is that the idea of a chess master, because that's kind of really what his role is in the in the plot, you know, in the movies. He's yeah, yeah, he's he's moving pieces around to manipulate everyone, and he's always taking the camera and things that he thinks he's ahead of Caleb, but in the end, he is betrayed, right? Because Caleb is one step ahead of what he thought he'd be, and Kyoko helped Ava get out. Yeah, whether one or both of those parts were something he thought would happen, and he thought he could still win. I don't know. He probably didn't predict the knife, I think, is maybe right. the, the wild card. I think card. that's the biggest thing. Is So I think Kyoko is really the wild card. She goes in, and that is the guarantee that Ava thinks she has to fight her way out. She can't just leave. Ava could have walked out. Yes. The power was out. She just could have left. But she comes in with the knife. Well, even Bobby Fischer lost, so. True. Yes. Yeah. Chess is still just a game. You will not win every time. 
because there's a lot of variables. There's not as many variables in this scenario, I don't think. No, I'm not a big up on chess, but I have a friend who is. And like in every move, there's so there's thousands of, that's what's so amazing about it, just in general, yep. to, to be a chess master. Yeah, I like chess. I am not good at it. Exactly, yeah. Because I can't think I'm... more than like two moves ahead at best. Yeah. My friend always beats me and he even like tells me to not to do something and I won't do it. And then he still is able to do it because <laughs> he's looking 10 moves ahead and I'm looking right. two. I guess anything else on Ex Machina or the minute? I don't think anything on the minute, I guess knowing that the next scene or the next minute point is the second test. Yeah. I feel like you don't really know what Caleb is going to do. He doesn't tip his hand. No. Really. I mean, he says he's trying to figure this out, but he's, it's kind of surprising that he didn't prepare more after the first test. Yeah. She's prepared. She's showing him a drawing in the next one. He kind of just goes to bed. I, I mean, I guess you don't know what he's doing. In the evening? To be fair, he was woken up in the middle of the night, so yes. he might have wanted to plan, but now hasn't had time to plan because he got up late. Yeah, and I guess, you know, he's presumably very far away and he's traveled and, you know. Oh, yeah, time zone change. Yeah, anytime you go to a hotel your first night, you don't sleep well, you know. <laughs> yeah, at least I don't, <laughs> which I think is like this. They say, you know, you, your fight or flight kind of instincts kick in, mm. like in a hotel where you don't know where someone could be attacking you. So you don't sleep as heavily because you're just not sure of your surroundings. So huh. perhaps, but I guess this is the second night. Yeah. So it was the second, uh, well, perhaps. wait, he got there. I'm not Did sure. He, does he do the test the first before he goes to sleep? Um, no, we saw him in bed and that was last night. And then he left the room, but that was in the middle of the night. This is presumably the next morning. I don't know if he slept before day one. Okay. So the day one is he gets there in the morning. He does the three minute short conversation with her. Yeah, maybe. And then now, okay. So this, so yeah. So maybe this is his first night. And that's why. Right. Oh, I'll, I'll give I'll cut Caleb a break. <laughs> he could use it. He's going to end up starving to death. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I guess if listeners want to hear you talk about other movies or other things, where can they find your show? Yeah, so Left of the Projector, you can get it any podcast source, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And just the one we released today was on The Truman Show. All the movies are sort of from that leftist perspective, um, if you will. So, And you can also get it on the uh, leftofthe.projector.buzzsprout.com too. Thank you for listening. Minutia Ex Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more Ex Machina every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. You can follow all three shows in one feed. Just search An Existential Trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at xmanusha, Instagram at manusha underscore x underscore machina, or Facebook at manusha x machina. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com, or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? The real test is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. But you know, the longer you listen to this abortion debate, the more you hear this phrase, sanctity of life. 
You've heard that. Sanctity of life. You believe in it? Personally, I think it's a bunch of shit. Well, I mean, life is sacred. Who said so? God? Hey, if you read history, you realize that God is one of the leading causes of death. Has been for thousands of years. Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Christians, all taking turns killing each other because God told them it was a good idea. The sword of God, the blood of the lamb, vengeance is mine. Millions of dead motherfuckers. Millions of dead motherfuckers, all because they gave the wrong answer to the God question. You believe in God? No. <laughs> dead. You believe in God? Yes. You believe in my God? No. <laughs> dead. My God has a bigger dick than your God. Thousands of years. Thousands of years. And all the best wars, too. The bloodiest, most brutal wars fought, all based on religious hatred. Which is fine with me. Hey, anytime a bunch of holy people want to kill each other, I'm a happy guy. But don't be giving me all this shit about the sanctity of life. I mean, even if there were such a thing, I don't think it's something you can blame on God. Now, you know where the sanctity of life came from? We made it up. You know why? Because we're alive. Self-interest. Living people have a strong interest in promoting the idea that somehow life is sacred. You don't see Abbott and Costello running around talking about this shit, do you? We're not hearing a whole lot from Mussolini on the subject. What's the latest from JFK? Not a goddamn thing. Because JFK, Mussolini, and Abbott and Costello are fucking dead. They're fucking dead. And dead people give less than a shit about the sanctity of life. Only living people care about it, so the whole thing grows out of a completely biased point of view. It's a self-serving, man-made bullshit story. It's one of these things we tell ourselves so we'll feel noble. Life is sacred. Makes you feel noble. Well, let me ask you this. If everything that ever lived is dead, and everything alive is going to die, where does the sacred part come in? I'm having trouble with that. Because, I mean, even with the stuff we preach about the sanctity of life, we don't practice it. We don't practice it. Look at what we kill. Mosquitoes and flies, because they're pests. Lions and tigers, because it's fun. Chickens and pigs, because we're hungry. Pheasants and quails, because it's fun. And we're hungry. And people, we kill people, because they're pests. And it's fun! And you might have noticed something else. The sanctity of life doesn't seem to apply to cancer cells, does it? You rarely see a bumper sticker that says, Save the tumors. Or I break for advanced melanoma. Ah, viruses, mold, mildew, maggots, fungus, weeds, E. coli, bacteria, the crabs. Nothing sacred about those things. So at best, the sanctity of life is kind of a selective thing. We get to choose which forms of life we feel are sacred, and we get to kill the rest. Pretty neat deal, huh? You know how we got it? We made the whole fucking thing up!